That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Adam Rutherford, and my dilemma is I simply cannot get my dog to learn recall and come back to me in the park when I let him off the lead. Okay, so the good news is uh, that you mentioned that your dog is still a puppy and just a few months old. And that is very key because if you ever went to the park with me and any of my three dogs, you would very quickly uh, presume not to ask me this question, uh, knowing that I would not be able to answer with any authority because uh, they they do not come. In fact, when we go to my parents' house in Michigan for the weekend, if my dog Fletch runs into the woods and he doesn't come back, uh, yelling come does not work. We are left with two uh, equally bad options. One is just to keep yelling treat over and over until <laughs> he eventually comes back uh or the very widely recommended uh i think professionally derived practice of just screaming in a really high pitch until they think something amazing is going on um which really sounds just like this Ah! and just doing that over and over until they uh come which they sometimes don't for quite some time but they are old and we've sort of given up you still have time and so i assume you started with the obvious you know recommended very slow, patient, repetitive, inside practicing the, the direction of come over and over again with treats every time. And then you move to a different room and then you go outside while they're tethered to something. And then eventually you put some distractions in the way. It's very slow. It's very tedious. Uh, you can't let them off the leash and start calling when they're not ready yet because then they just hear the word come as some sort of gibberish and they know it means nothing if they do it or not. Um, so yeah, you also haven't, you know, you have to make sure you haven't ruined the word because if you only say come when they're bad and you want to discipline them or when you want the like fun times at the park to end, then they associate it with something bad. So maybe if you've done that, you could start fresh with a new word and make sure that um, they associate it with just treats and scratches and rubs and everything else whenever they come to you. Um, so yeah, all that slow, tedious stuff. And then eventually you get to the park and when they come to you, a lot of times they need to like get a treat and then get to go back and play immediately and then come get a treat, get to go run around again. So they don't associate it always with a uh, fun time being over. Uh, the key is patience. And that is why my dogs rarely come when called, but, uh, you've, you've got time and hopefully you will fare better than I have. The commission has spoken. My guest this week is Adam Rutherford. He's a geneticist, science writer, and broadcaster. He's got a new book called How to Argue with a Racist, What Our Genes Do and Don't Say About Human Difference. He has written for the science pages of The Guardian, uh, presented a bunch of award-winning series and hosting uh, programs for the BBC, um, and does a lot of work with nature as well. We had a fascinating conversation. Nature, the the magazine and publication, not not the world, although I'm sure he works in the world as well. Uh, we had a fascinating conversation about uh, race and especially how it relates to our current struggles with each other as human beings, how it's a social construct and not a genetic predictor of intelligence or speed or any sort of other stereotypical characteristics tied to a person's skin color. And uh, we talked about why he decided to vote his time as a scientist to writing this book and how he was motivated by the idea that science is not an ally for those who want to divide humans based on race and how recent unprecedented discoveries in human genetics have helped our understanding of human evolution, plus how a recent boom in the uh, genealogy industry, so Ancestry.com, 23andMe, those things, has sort of reinforced false ideas about genetic essentialism that white nationalists and racial purists misuse and misinterpret for their 
evil gains. Uh, so sort of by dismantling racist falsehoods using actual science, he can separate what race means for culture and aesthetics versus how it's been weaponized for hate and uh, power. Uh, so yeah, really interesting conversation. I tried to keep up with his very smart brain. I did my best. I hope you can too. That's what she said. So regular listeners of the podcast will know I love a good, interesting book. I love conversations about social issues and I love learning things and arguing with people. So this is uh, all those things coming together. A great new book uh, talking about the issues of race and helping win an argument come from a family of lawyers. Arming me with facts and information is about uh, my favorite thing in the world. And so, Adam, I'm so happy to have you on. Before we get into the book, I just want um, if you could let people know a little bit of your background. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a geneticist. I've been a scientist since I was, well, I guess since I was a tiny kid. Um, but I studied genetics and evolutionary biology here in London at University College London. I started that when I was 18 and I just didn't ever stop really. Um, so I, 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 I worked at a uh, did my PhD at a hospital where I was looking at blindness in children. And I started writing and doing radio programs and TV programs. And I did a little bit of work in cinema. But the whole time, basically, I've still been researching and, and science communicating mostly about evolution, about genetics. And that has inevitably led me over the last few years to focus my arguments onto topics of uh, human variation and specifically on race, which is what the genesis of this book was. There are, um, as people say, outdoor and indoor cats. And I feel the same way about mathematicians, scientists, brilliant people who are not always served to be outdoor scientists. Um, at what point in your career or your academia did you realize that you were uh, qualified to also be a speaker and a radio host and all those things and not just the one in the lab who finds the, the amazing discoveries? Well, I think the truth, the truthful answer to that is that when you work in a lab, right, everyone is smart. I mean, that's sort of the entry level qualification. Not everyone is kind and not everyone is good at talking about stuff. And I think that the, the realization was that I was better at talking about stuff than I was at actually doing it. And I would leave that to my colleagues mm -hmm. and then I could translate what they do. Um, and, and so, you know, because science is hard, right? And and it needs scientists, as you say, are often, what did you say? In, indoor cats. Indoor cats, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I guess that, you know, my, my niche, which is a, you know, sort of really evolutionary term is, uh, is as a, a curator of what they do and translator. And, yeah. And that's my, been my calling for the last 10 years. The, uh, the Neil deGrasse Tyson of, uh, of genealogy and, uh, evolution and all that. I'll take that. I, I will take that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, you also grew up with um, with uh, your own background. Your, your mother is Indo-Guyanese or Guyanese. I'm not sure how you say that over there. Um, and so uh, your own sort of ethnic, I would say, ambiguity probably is how people see you uh, out across the pond um, has led to, to having to deal with conversations about race for most of your life. Uh, yeah, sure. So, so I am I'm mixed race or biracial or, or whatever term you want to use. You know, for much of my life, people refer to me as half caste, which is now sort of fallen mm. out of favor. But yeah. it's a very Indian related thing, um, and, and I talk a, a little bit about about that in 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 the book. But partly because, well, I'm, I'm not you know I'm not that interested in talking about myself, although that's not not what my wife thinks. Yeah. Um, but it, kind of because. 
you know, my own genesis is slightly unusual. And yes, my my biological mother is Indo-Guyanese, so she's Indian via Guyana because during the uh, colonial period, the British were in charge of Guyana and they indentured, effectively enslaved people from Gu- from India to work on the sugar plantations in Guyana. And, and that's where my, my mother was born. But, and this is one of the key points, I, I wasn't raised by my biological mother. My parents split up when I was very little. My dad is from the northeast of England and he remarried. And my stepmother, who is who raised me, and who, when I talk about my mother, I'm actually talking about my stepmother, is from the east of England. And so part of the, one of, one of the sort of themes of the book is how genetics and genealogy and identity are not necessarily aligned because I don't identify as a, mixed race, Indo-Guyanese, British person, although that is what my Wikipedia says. I identify as someone who comes from a small farming community on the east coast of England and supports a third-rate football team. <laughs> soccer. I'm sorry, soccer. Say, that could be so many, though, because you you people and your football, everybody's third-rate unless they're uh, currently bringing home uh, the, the the title. Um, so so you, you, you kind of... Um, I imagine, like you said, your your work in evolution and genealogy and everything else happens you upon uh, a lot of conversations about the things that are actually transferred via DNA versus the the idea of race or races that we have as a society. But what inspired you to actually decide, I want to make a book of this, and I want to make this in part because I feel like the arguments being made by um, white nationalists and racists are based in science that is not fact. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it was it was sort of the dawning realization over the last 10 years or so as a not just as a researcher but as someone who talks to publics about genetics that ideas which were completely uncontroversial within the academy within within genetics as an academic field uh, were much less accepted or understood or, or, or challenged far more often in public audiences, specifically when we were talking about concepts like race. So what I mean by that is that race is a very real thing, uh, but it is a social categorization. It's not a biological taxonomy. And and this is this, this is sort of textbook stuff and has been for several decades in um uh, within genetics. But I was finding more and more that having these conversations in public and talking about human variation and human evolution uh, and, and sports and various other, you know, human attributes, that this was not a view which was commonly disseminated or commonly understood amongst m- many people. And I suppose the the sort of changing political climate that has occurred all around the West in the last few years, um, the rise of populism and nationalist politics, which we've definitely seen over here in the UK with probably best exemplified by Brexit, by us, uh, our our collective decision to leave the European Union, meant that I I was, uh, there is definitely a more vocal expression of racist views than at any time that I can remember, which is not the same thing as saying uh, people are more racist now than they have been in the past, or that racism didn't exist ten years ago or fifteen years ago. It's just that I think people, some some areas of society, feel, feel more emboldened mm-hmm. um, to talk to to express racist views now than at any time that I can remember. You know, at the same time, human genetics is coming on leaps and bounds, and we understand more about genomes than ever any time in our past. And it felt like you know my tram lines were beginning to to collide that that there was a sort of inevitability that i had to i felt compelled to write this write this book about 
well, trying to correct some of the stereotypes or trying to arm people who are well-intentioned and not racist when faced with these types of arguments. Yeah. You know, you, you write about and, and, and the promotions for the book talk about scientists making unprecedented discoveries that when accurately understood are powerful. Um, I imagine that's the human genome project. That's the sort of single migration, the all non-Africans descended from a single migration studies. And most of those are all relatively recent. And what you're saying, if I gather correctly, is that in the science world, these last couple decades of discovery have been monumental in understanding race as a social construct and as a color of skin versus a genetic makeup. But because for so long we presumed and bought into ideas of race being about so much more than that, the time has not occurred or the education has not occurred to flip us into understanding the, the newer discoveries. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the the, the the types of categorizations that we all sort of understand and use when we talk about East Asians or Southern Asians or black people or, or, you know, Native Americans or whatever, the racial categorizations that are sort of sociably, so socially used today, they're so embedded in our culture and have been in European culture. And by European, by extension, I mean, North American descended European uh, culture. They're just baked into our culture in a way that is very hard to sort of unpick, even with new discoveries from from genetics. So, for example, you know, concepts about racial purity or genealogy or genealogical lines are are they're very attractive narratives for for us that we want to trace our roots, we want to understand our family, where we fit into this you know, absurd picture that, that, that is humankind and, and the world. And, and we look for these threads and, and we look to science to support them. But actually, you know, everyone is descended from the same group of people many times over. You, I, I can tell by looking at you right now that we're probably fourth cousins, right? <laughs> because most people are, uh, you know, fourth or fifth or sixth cousins if, if, you're, if you're of, you know, broadly European descent and, and light-skinned. Uh, but humans... Ah, but you know, part of the human condition is that we want narrative, and we want narrative satisfaction, and you know, we turn to science to deliver that. But that science doesn't isn't very good at delivering conclusive, definitive narrative satisfaction. It's very good at asking questions that have open ended and really complex answers. And well, I, I like that. Smart enough to understand all of the things that factor into the questions being asked and the way that those answers evolve. Versus taking the answer that you're looking for and then calling it science, which I think is, is one of the things that you write about in the book that's so fascinating is this obsession with genetics that you find amongst white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and how the rise of the at-home ancestry kit, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, all that stuff, um, is limited because of how they actually use it, right? You have to have all the other people that are paying to buy into using it. That's where all the genetic samples come from that they compare to. So socioeconomics is a factor, but also the idea that what you what response you get or answer you get um, is sort of limited by your own understanding of how we all became in existence, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, you've touched on. I'm pr I'm pretty cynical about the value of these these types of Sounds like uh, it. Yeah. products. I, I mean, I think they offer. They, I think they offer limited information that that you that can't be gleaned from much simpler questions like, 
what are you you know looking at you or understanding your surname or or, or just some sort of very basic aspects of genealogy and it's to that I, what i mean by that is because you know we are so uh closely related that none of those things are, are particularly surprising there are some surprises that emerge from those types of kits uh so you know DNA is really usually good. that your dad had an affair before yes. you were born, and that you have family members across the country that have been looking for you. That's exactly right. I mean, <laughs> we're going. One of the things that it's really good at, and and we're at this time in history where a, a generation of people who were fathered by well over here by GIs um, uh, during the Second World War are rediscovering their actual biological. Mm-hmm. Um, ancestry or lost cousins because DNA is really, really good at close relationships. But by a t- by the time you get to about third cousin, the relatedness via DNA just drops off a cliff. And, and you know, we share like 1% or much less with our third, fourth, fifth, and everyone else cousins on earth. So at that point, it becomes you know, sort of meaningless because everyone has literally thousands of third cousins and hundreds of thousands of fourth cousins, and 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 before long, you know, you you're you're cousins with uh, everyone on, on Earth. Mm-hmm. But that's not the story that people pull out of these tests. So so I get I get emails from white people every single month saying I'm either saying or asking whether they're descended from Vikings or not. Right, because the Vikings were cool, and Thor is cool, and Chris Hemsworth is ridiculously cool, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the answer is, well, yeah, you are, because everyone's descended from Vikings. Like, it doesn't matter whether you're born in Stockholm or you have blonde hair and blue eyes. If if you're vaguely, if any of your ancestors have been around Europe in the last thousand years, then you're descended from Vikings. And so it's a sort of meaningless thing to try and extract some sort of personal identification from ancestry that is well a thousand years old or 40 generations old but is also shared by enormous incalculable numbers of people it it doesn't it's a weird thing being a geneticist and actually telling people that genes are much less important than (laughs) you know your own cultural identity but it's not just people who want to say that they're descended from vikings it's people who want to point to some sort of purity of race and in doing so elevate themselves above others. And I I listened to a podcast with you where you gave some hilarious examples of people who find out that they um, have non-Aryan blood. These are white supremacists and and Nazis and avowed racists that are literally engaging on message boards with other people where they are only hanging out with those people because they're also white nationalists and avowed racists. And they just say, try another company or look in the mirror. And if you don't think you're Jewish, then you're not. I mean, yeah, yeah, I know it's, it's, so it's a, I wouldn't recommend anyone does this, but I've, I've spent quite, I've way too much time over the last 10 years hanging around on neo-Nazi message boards online. And I really, really do not recommend that you do this because it's there. It's not good for one's uh, mental health. Um, But I was doing it in order to, well, partly so that you don't have to, but also <laughs> to try and track these conversations about ancestral purity. And especially because, as you say, people are beginning to use, or you know, white supremacists are beginning to use the home ancestry testing kits in order to demonstrate their racial purity. I'm, I'm putting this in parentheses. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, by extension, their racial superiority. Um, and, and I began to notice a few years ago that occasionally 
someone would post their results and it would be like, Oh my God, it turns out, you know, <laughs> I've, I've got recent ancestry from people or from places that I'm, I'm I hate, you know, I, that I absolutely despise. I've got recent Jewish ancestry or recent African ancestry and, you know, not to trivialize it, but there is a, it, you know, t- I think oh, in the book I, did, I in the book that's kind of Schadenfreude. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a t- in the book I say it's like a tiny shaft of light in an otherwise dark <laughs> place. But watching people fall apart when their whole identity, which is born of hatred, is, is it, when when the, the the scaffold is taken away, when the the crutches are knocked from un, under their feet, and they see this. But then, they, so so I'd been tracking this for a few years. And then a couple of years ago, some sociologists, Aaron Panofsky, uh, over in the States, um, they documented this. And, and they, they went through the Stormfront web, web pages. Stormfront is the oldest mm-hmm. white supremacist website, uh, neo-Nazi website. And, and they documented like 3,000 comments that, in which someone had discovered non-North European ancestry. And, and they ranked the most common responses and you, and you you just alluded to some of them. The first one was the most common was, uh, well, you got this result with one company, try another company cause you might get a different result. And, and in fact, tainted sample, that, tainted sample must not have been right. <laughs> well, so th- in fact, that is not the most ridiculous, uh, thing to say because different companies do use different panels and you can get legitimately different results, which also demonstrates the sort of right <laughs> insecurity of those results anyway. But then the rest of the answers were just, you know, full. I hope on. they're not a sponsor today. Anyway, uh, go on. <laughs> yeah. They often are. Sorry. Sorry, 23 <laughs> me. I mean, they, they're good products in a sense. It's just, I think people's interpretation of them. Right. Well, if you're using them to demonstrate a uh, purity or seniority based on uh, what, what you've alluded to, which is very limited look at your actual history and, and biological makeup. It's not great. I'm curious what they, what, I don't know if you ever engage with people for your own work or if you limit it to observing, but I wonder what the response is when you try to explain to those people. Well, not only are those results probably accurate, but um, everybody came from the same place. And if you go far enough back, we're all literally one race and it's a human race. And all the splitting up of it is based solely on basically the darker or lighter shade of pale. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, I mean, when it comes to, so in in the book, I talk about how I, I do talk about white supremacists, but I actually try to limit my my discussion of white supremacists and and their interest in geneal- genealogical purity or genetic purity because I think they're actually a distraction. And and you know the there's there's the quote by Jonathan Swift, which I'm going to modernize partly because I can't remember it verbatim from the 1721 original, but it's you can't rationalize you can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into right and i think with neo-nazis and white supremacists they're not they're not rational positions these are these are ideological positions born of hatred and in fact you know you just you just said one of the answers which demonstrates that so conclusively which is that when a guy finds out and, and this is a documented case when someone finds out that he's got recent jewish ancestry ashkenazi jewish ancestry one of the responses is if you look in the mirror and you see a Jew, then you know. If you if you don't see a Jew, then you're fine. And so I was like, well, if you can just decide yeah. what your ancestry is, without what's the point in taking the test in the first place? Right. 
Right. So you, you've kind of separated the book into a number of ways that you are going to scientifically explain to people who believe otherwise that um, race is, is a social construct and not at the, at the DNA level. Um, it's appearance, ancestry, athleticism, and intelligence. Um, when you try to kind of take these falsehoods that we've all bought into and, and reveal them to be that, um, are, you, are you more interested in teaching people the science or is, or is your, like you said before, if you're trying to be that go-between between the very difficult scientific ideas and the, the things that people can actually grasp, the layperson, are you more interested in arming them with the way to discuss it? I, I don't know if those are necessarily different things, but um, what's more important for the world to catch up on? The literal science or just changing the larger ideas we have about how we're separated by color? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not under any illusions that I'm going to fix racism with this with this <laughs> book, but there's a very specific aim for it because you know we're in this era where where race is in the public discourse all the time, and not that long ago, a couple of months ago, the the all top ten books in the New York Times uh, list yeah. were were about race. Um, but I'm I'm a scientist, right? And my approach to this is is to to talk about the science to talk about the science of human variation and the history of my field which is intrinsically linked with the creation of race and the creation of racism that we currently uh, endure and so my the my my point and my shtick is that because science is so closely tied to historical racism and current concepts of of racism and because with this this sort of renaissance in in genetics and and the home genetic test kits that we've been using um there is a sort of a recapitulation of a marshalling in fact of scientific ideas into justifying mm -hmm. racial bigotry and what i want is to say very clearly that you you can't have my toys right you you can't use science to defend your bigotry and this is why and on the one hand it's it's the white supremacists with their half-assed ideas about racial purity but i think i'm more focused and more interested in people who are not active racists who are just normal people who don't consider themselves racist but are well-intentioned good people but because of the the how baked into our culture these these sorts of stereotypes are about different races um we we hold views which are which are effectively racist views and they're not backed up by the science and they're not backed up by 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 data but they feel experientially to be correct mm -hmm. that is one of the reasons why sport is so important in this conversation and i i'm a big sports fan um and i and i play a lot of sport myself but I had to persuade my editors that including a quarter of the book on sport was a useful thing to do because they were like, well, you know, not everyone is a sports fan. Not everyone cares about cricket as quite as much as you do. <laughs> and, and especially Americans, there's no <laughs> cricket in the book for, yeah. for the Americans. Okay, um, but I think it's, I think this is the arena in which I think sport is one of the arenas in which we see stereotypes mm. uh, about people from around the world at elite levels, doing things that normal humans can't do. I mean, you know this, but why am I telling you this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I realized halfway through that. I think I was explaining sport to you then. No, no, no. It's quite all right. I'm used to it. Trust me. <laughs> um, 
But but you know you do talk about the sort of pseudoscience that goes behind just generally accepted things that are not actually scientifically backed up, like Kenyan and Ethiopian runners are the best because of genetics, or black people are not strong swimmers because of genetics. And is that just a failure of imagination? Is it is it an acceptance of something without wanting to do the work of digging deeper into the all the many other factors that contribute to cultures what they get involved in and what they succeed at? Well, there's a lot of things going on there, but y- yes, it absolutely is. It's a it is a lack of imagination or a lack of lack of willingness to deep dive, um, and, and also there's a, there's another thing going on here, which is that some of these attributes, especially with regards to sport, are positive, right? So who doesn't want to be more muscly or faster at sprint running or long distance running or or you know whatever it is? So you sometimes hear. You, you know your your uncle at Thanksgiving or, or or in the pub saying, "That's not racist. It's just that black people are better at running." Mm-hmm. Now the, the the problem with this is double problems with this. The first is that it, it's not it's not true from a genetic point of view. It's not it's not reinforced by basic biology. It is true that there hasn't been a white guy in the final of the hundred meter sprint since nineteen eighty. And it is true that that was the last time that the winning time was more than 10 seconds. And, and the Americans weren't even there in, in, uh, in, in 1980. So you think, well, hold on a minute. That's a really good data set, which says white people aren't as good at explosive energy sports as, as black people. Now, there's so many problems in, in, in that as a data set. I mean, the first thing is it's only 58 people. So, which is a t- t- terrible sample size. Secondly, elite sports people are, are a terrible sample anyway, because they're not, they're, the fact that they're elite means that they're not re- necessarily representative of the populations from which they came uh, anyway. And the third thing is, I think this is, this is important, is if you're just looking at the 100 meters sprint in the Olympic final, you've already effectively selected for people who are good at that particular race rather than the the pool from which they they might they might represent uh, their ancestral population which we've already established they, they may not because they're elite athletes so I, I you know i do a deep dive into into the genetics that underlies the difference between um explosive energy sports talent and endurance sports which which are genetically based i mean to get to that level of sporting success you do need to have a genetic advantage the question is whether that genetic advantage is unique to your your racial category or your ancestral population and the answer to that is it's just not in any meaningful way all of that should be secondary to the fact that if it were the case that african americans due to biology which some some people have argued is is as a result of being descended from the enslaved over the last three or four hundred years um if they were fundamentally or biologically better explosive energy sports then where are the where are the black sprint cyclists or the black squash players or um short distance swimmers of which there have only been two black people in the history of the olympics at the 50 meter sprint, both Americans. Um, the numbers just don't even tally in the slightest bit if race is your 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 main category. Um, and I think I think in my experience, when I start having these conversations with people, mostly, mostly, the response is, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, or 
oh yeah i guess that kind of makes sense the the hardened racists say come up with crazy ass excuses <laughs> for why the black swimming thing as well i mean that, that's that's one of the issues which actually makes me quite angry because in in america 70% of african americans don't swim compared to 70% of of white americans who do swim and some people including black people i've got friends over here who are, who are black who said who have said to me that one of the stereotypes about swimmers and and race which is black people don't swim because their bones are denser and therefore they sink right what? i know i mean it's a real thing it's a real thing there was a a prominent commentator in the 90, late 80s for i want to say ESPN but i don't think ESPN existed back then did um, yesterday was our 41st anniversary oh i did not know that i did not know that mm-hmm. al campanis is his name but okay. he, he he was fired for saying exactly exactly that oh, i'm sure it wasn't ESPN then okay definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> um and you know in swim america a couple of years ago did a did a survey to try and work out what the correlates were to justify the fact that the majority of African Americans don't swim. And they were all socioeconomic. Of course, yeah. So yeah. access to pools was one, um, because most pools, even after segregation in 64, were built in white areas. No role models. We just talked about that. There are no, you know, name three b- prominent black swimmers. Mm-hmm. Um, four was not having parents or friends that swim. Number five was just economics because there are extra costs associated with extracurricular swim lessons. But the main one, and it's kind of funny to have to say this, but the biggest factor in learning how to swim is being taught how to swim. Mm. People don't know how to swim unless they're taught how to swim. And yet we come up with these crazy nonsense scientific, pseudoscientific explanations for these real statistics like uh, the denser bones right. or you know some kind of fictional buoyancy factor now just a final point on this because this is this is where i grip my teeth and have to rein myself in it's kind of funny having to say that right and mm-hmm. i always get a laugh when i say this in lectures but the fact of the matter is that the drowning rate the death by drowning rate for kids in america for african-american kids between the ages of eight and 14 is three times higher mm. than it is for white americans so this is this is a a kind of structural, societal, systemic racism and a stereotype associated with it, which is literally lethal. Right. And and that's it's just I, I, unnecessary. That is, right. It's unnecessary. And if you don't get angry about that, I, then yeah. I, I think you need. Well, to. I want to get into that part in just a minute. Sort of the ways in which that when we create ideas around race and attribute them to genetics, whether that's uh, frailty or or likelihood of get, getting illnesses or whatever. I, I want to get into that in a second, but specifically to what you just said, um, you you wrote that DNA is a bewilderingly inscrutable predictor of skin color. So does that mean you can look at DNA and not be likely at all to guess at the skin color of the person? whose dna you're looking at yeah well <laughs> you phrased that quite well and quite cleverly well done <laughs> but um it's hard it's really hard to go from the the basic sequence of dna which is a string of let four letters we call them nucleotides a c t g you know you know when you see on tv the, the sort of double helix and stuff to go from there and read that sequence to what the actual physical characteristic that it encodes that that protein encodes is uh, it's extremely hard to the point of being 
in many cases, impossible. So sometimes we have to work backwards from that. We say, you know, you've got, you've got dark skin, you've got blue eyes, and we can then work out what genes are involved in that. But the, the concept of some, something we've been trying to move away from for a long time in, in genetics is the idea of determinism. So if you have this gene, then this is what we'll, you'll end up with. And, and in fact, eye color is a good example for that because, you know, it's high school biology that if you have one eye, uh, one gene for brown eyes, then you have brown eyes. If you have one gene for brown eyes and one gene for blue eyes, you still have brown eyes. You mm -hmm. have to have two right. blue eyed genes in order to have blue eyes, right? Yeah. It's kind of not really very true that. Uh, <laughs> All the recessive trait stuff is BS. It's not BS. It's just really <laughs> complex. And so it's com it's completely possible to have two genes which are associated with blue eyes and still have brown eyes mm -hmm. and vice versa. And in fact, it's all compounded by the fact there's another separate gene which is related to green eyes. And in fact, in the, in the most recent studies, something like 15 or 16 other genes are also involved in determining eye color. So by the end of that, you go, well, it's we can make probabilistic predictions and it is true that if both of your parents have blue eyes you're very much more likely to have blue eyes than brown but it's not impossible and so th this sort of emerges when some of my other work is is about ancient dna which is when we dig up the bones of people who've been dead for thousands of years and we get their dna out and then we make try and make predictions about what they looked like and that that is really really hard work because you can look at the genes involved in eye color and you can make a probabilistic prediction what eye color these people had and they're 10,000 years dead or 100,000 years dead. And it's intelligent guesswork. But the fact is that even if we did it, if I die today and, and I'm dug up in a thousand years time and my DNA is intact and they look at, they look at the genes involved in eye color, then they, according to 23andMe, which is which is good data then 69% of people with my version of eye color genes have brown eyes that's a 2 in 3 chance right mm. you know you got that's that, would you bet on that <laughs> probably <laughs> <laughs> well okay <laughs> i wouldn't uh, yeah <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't go based off my willingness to gamble um yeah. <laughs> okay yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe not a great example but you know i i just sort of worry that we the, the sort of magic bullet of DNA over the last 20 years or so has sort of reinvigorated this deterministic view. Right, right. But so then how, when there are examples of, say, diseases that are supposedly proven in part because of genetics to disproportionately affect um, African-Americans or, or black people, some of them, it seems quite clear it's because of access to healthcare or, or racism in believing the symptoms, right? Things like the, um, the, the mortality uh, of pregnant women uh, that is disproportionately black women are affected by that. But aren't there are also some very specific and sort of rare diseases that are more commonly attributed to certain races, regardless of their socioeconomic status? So sort of and sort of not. And this is the type of answer I give all the time. Um, <laughs> so uh, there, there, are, there are, right. So medicine is heavily racialized anyway. And you just alluded to that. The, 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 the infant mortality is way higher amongst African-Americans than it is for Europeans, except for one specific, uh, situation in the States. And can you guess what that is? Mm -mm. It's the military Huh? in the military where access to healthcare is universal. 
the infant mortality rate between African Americans and your white white Americans is exactly the same. Wow. Which demonstrates quite how clearly. Yeah, it's a control group. <laughs> exactly how socio how socioeconomic that that is. Having said that, there are definitely diseases, uh, the frequency of which is increased in different racialized groups. The question is whether they are exclusive to those groups. So, uh, is this disease does it only exist in African Americans or Ashkenazi Jews or, or you know, whichever racialized group you want to talk about? And the answer to that is a is an absolute no. The frequencies are increased, but they're not unique. Um, the first disease to be racialized was Tay-Sachs. So Tay-Sachs is a terrible disease that affects- like Sickle cell? Sick, sickle cell is another one. I'll, oh, I'll it's not the same. Not the same. Tay-Sachs uh, was identified in the 1880s um, as affecting only Jewish families. Um, and it was immediately referred to as the Jewish disease. And this is a time of rising anti-Semitism, which is going to culminate in the Second World War. Um, it was identified in two different families, both of which were Ash Ashkenazi Jewish. It was identified two years later in a non-Jewish family in London. And because they weren't Jewish, it was given a different name. Right. So immediately mm. you just made a new disease. Yeah. Right? You just think, well, it can't be the same disease yeah. because these people aren't Jewish. Huh. Right. And um, and in fact, it's not it's not specific to Jews at all. Um, it, it it did occur at a higher frequency in Jewish people, but 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 not exclusive to Jews whatsoever. And in fact, is common in Cajuns um, and Acadians in Canada and and various other other groups. Sickle cell is a really interesting one because um, sickle cell is often thought to be a black disease, and it does occur at a higher frequency in African Americans. And um, I'm I'm a big hip hop fan, as lots of 45 year old white English people are, and and Tupac uses that as a diss in the track "Hit 'Em Up." If that makes any, if that means anything, yeah, to, it to does. Guys. Yeah, okay. I am not doesn't... a 45 year old British man, but I also like the hip hop. <laughs> the hip hop. <laughs> um, and so there's a stereotype associated with sickle cell, which is that it's it is a specifically black disease. Now it's not. What it is, is a disease associated with malaria. Um, so the pattern, the distribution of sickle cell uh, in Africa perfectly matches the distribution of mosquito zones where malaria is, is mm. endemic. And the reason for that is that you, you have sickle cell disease if you have two copies. It's another recessive gene, uh, recessive disease. So if you have two copies of the sickle cell gene, then you have sickle cell disease. If you have one copy, you have sickle cell trait, which is not without its problems, but is not nearly as serious as sickle cell disease. But sickle cell trait is protective against malaria. So it evolved as a way, as a coping mechanism for evolving alongside um, m malaria zones. So it's not an Afri it's not a black disease because it doesn't it, it covers bits of Africa, but only the bits where there are where, where malaria is endemic. And in fact, you see sickle cell trait and other related diseases all over the world wherever there are malaria zones. So yes, it occurs at a higher frequency in African Americans who are descended from. West African people whose ancestors evolved alongside malaria. Is it unique to black people? No, it is not. It is common in South America. It's common in India. It's common in Greece. It's common in the Middle East. So then the, the idea there, and forgive my lack of a scientific way of putting this then, is that yes, you can genetically be more predisposed to something, but not because your genes are singularly attributed to your race, but rather because you got them from someone who came before you 
who happened to be in that area or that whatever, right? So again, it's this idea that, of course, you get things from your family makeup. The way your body is made is a result of genetics, but that those genetics are not a continuous line across only your own quote unquote race or the idea of race that we've assigned you. It's more so just where you lived, where they went, what they got along the way, all that yeah. other stuff. Yeah, and no, so I it's think... just grouped more based on race because those groups tended to be in certain areas and move in the same groups. Well, I, I think that was perfectly scientific. Oh yeah, really nailed it. <laughs> no, I I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. Humans are really good at two things which is moving and sex and and, and this sometimes relates... at the same time <laughs> depends on how long you've been married it's it's I'm, I'm british and i can't possibly comment on, on, on such matters um the concepts of racial purity that we talked about at the very beginning uh just completely uh undermine any sense that that any population could be isolated for any significant proportion of time and that that characteristics within that population are, are sort of racially mediated in, in, in the way that some people think they are or, or that our social categories of race determine. But the other thing which I think is really important here is that, that we created these categories, right? We created these categories in the 17th century as Europeans were expanding around the world and meeting new people. And they were created with a specific aim of subjugating the those people. So the first time we use taxonomy for humans, which is in the 17th, 18th century, it's not four or five races of subspecies or races of people. Uh, it is four or five races or subspecies of people which are hierarchical, right? They're ranked. And all of the categorizations and taxonomies used between the 18th century and the 20th century were ranked. They were hierarchical. And see if you can guess who came <laughs> top. <laughs> every single time. Now, so you have, we talk about black people, right? We talk about Africa as a continent, which consists of 54 countries and 1.3 billion people. When we look at the genetics within Africa, which we have only really been doing for the last five years, which is kind of absurd in itself, right. there is more genetic diversity in Africa than there is in the rest of the world put together. Right, which means that, or another way of saying this is that almost all of our, evo our evolution occurred within Africa, and it's only in the last few thousand years or few tens of thousands of years that we spread out over the rest of the world. And it's so part of that because a lot of the tribes and groupings in Africa, some of them have maintained sort of a separation. Like I was in Tanzania, and what we spent the day with the Hadza people, and they don't really interact with the outside world except in sometimes giving tours so that they can get a variety of things that they want to trade for. Um, or you hear about, you know, tribes that live on an island and like some white missionary will be like, I'm going to go save you and introduce you to God. And then they murder him and everyone's mad. And I'm like, well, I mean, that's where they live. Like, uh, just leave them alone. That's what they want. Um, is that part of that though? That they're, that they're, and when you look at the genetics of those groups, if you're allowed to, and, and if they uh, let you, does that, indicate how much less transfer of genes there are if there's not movement and interaction and all the other stuff. Do you know what? It's almost the opposite way around from that. Really? So even though we see the, we, we, we think of isolated populations within Africa, but it's more that because there's been so much movement within Africa over the last hundred thousand years and, and beyond that the, the variety is, is drawn from, from that. It's, it's the other way around because 
everyone else on Earth comes from a very small population, which was, even though it was migrating out of Africa, because it was such a small population, we are much similar to each other than the people who, who remained in Africa. Right. The problem is that evolution has deceived our eyes. People in Africa, on average, have a darker skin tone than people outside of Africa. That's an unequivocal thing to say. And, and it's important, I think, for people like me to, to – I'm not a blank slatist about this. People are different around Right. You're not that I don't see color. You're like, there is color. It means something culturally. It just doesn't mean that you're predisposed exactly. to be one thing or another solely based on race. Yeah, exactly. And if I say to you, it's a black person, it's a black man, or it's a black woman, you've got a rough idea of what I'm talking about. But you visited Africa. And anyone who has visited Africa knows that the skin pigmentation within Africa is enormously variable. And in fact, it is more variable in Africa, the continent of Africa, than it is in the rest of the world. We also know that the genes that encode, that, that are associated with pigmentation variation, are more varied within Africa than they are in the rest of the world. We also know that those variations predate Homo sapiens by like half a million years. So we were varied in our skin tone before we left Africa, before we were even our own species. All of that is uncontroversial within genetics, and yet we say black people, right? African Americans are, are uh, is an even different and more well, just different categorization at a genetic level because of the peculiar and pernicious history of transatlantic slavery. The majority of African Americans were descended from the enslaved of just five countries down the West Coast, and which were separate countries or separate tribal groups. And they're mixed and they're thrown together and there's huge unnatural selection pressures hmm. due to slavery. Um, there's, there's a massive overrepresentation of female genes uh, because men were more likely to be doing labor in fields, which was much more dangerous. Things like uh, rice farming, particularly from people descended from Senegalese. Uh, who were experts in rice farming in, in the early days of, of uh, transatlantic slavery, where malaria again becomes end endemic. So the death rate for men was way higher. On top of that, you've got another social phenomenon, which is white slave owners raping their, their female um, enslaved. And so again, the, there is a much greater representation of female African DNA in the African-American population. But as a result of that, most white Americans with longstanding American ancestry have a significant proportion of African DNA, mm -hmm. and all African Americans have a significant proportion of European DNA. So you've got this, you know, completely unique mix population structure within America, which is as a result of the, the wickedness of transatlantic slavery. You know, the crazy stories that emerge from this are, are well, you, I mean, Americans know this, but, you know, things like how Thomas Jefferson had children with Sally Hemming and Sally Hemming was, was mixed. She was, she was mixed race, but she, because she was a woman, she was officially black and enslaved. And because at that point in American history, social status is derived from the mother and not from the father, which is a law introduced in order to, uh, to facilitate mm -hmm. the sexual exploitation of female slaves. Um, so Thomas Jefferson has six black enslaved children while he's the standing president, and we know their descendants today. And that's just... Insane. It's not. It, it's insane. It's, so I, there's so much more to get to. I'm running out of time here. I, I wanted to, to ask then, when you 
can trace all this genetic makeup and, and you can look across the world and say, first of all, we all came from the same place, which means we're all the same. We're just different pigmentations. There are certainly things that are going to be passed along genetically from generation to generation. Those things are going to be different based on all the things that came before. Why then, no matter what discoveries are made scientifically to continue to prove the idea that we are all the human race and everything else is a social construct, do we never evolve and change on that? in our discussions and our understanding? Well, you know what? I think we do. And I think that we have, you know, terrible short-termism in, in terms of our, our memories, because the fact is that, you know, a second ago, we were talking about the construction of race in the 17th and 18th century, this, the era that we call the Enlightenment. Well, it was also the era of exploitation and, and, and plunder and, and the invention of racial categories that, that we that we have today. Before that, there are plenty of references to pigmentation when talking about the different people of the world, but it isn't the primary determinant for the othering of, of people or the descriptions of other people. The, the earliest descriptions of pigmentation variation go back to Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. They talk about Ethiops, meaning Ethiopians, and it literally translates as blackened skin, right? But they, those aren't the, the primary determinants of like behavioral characteristics or saying that because these people have different skin that that we we can separate them from us and therefore if this is if this is what you're interested in subjugate them um they were much more concerned with religious or geographical or language or cultural barriers as a means of attacking different different groups of people it, it is only in the last 400 years that the racial categories that we understand today as social taxonomies have become normalized and especially normalized in the west and so i i think the impermanence of these types of characteristics is a good indicator if you look over the long history you you, you know you, you look you take the long view on this that we are capable of change what, what is permanent is bigotry right mm. and and hatred of other people and coming Fear up of with, the other yeah yeah and coming up with reasons why we we want to take your stuff right um, that that will never go away. But I, I, if if you take the long view on science and history and the history of science, then I think it's perfectly reasonable to to think that there will come a time when the racial categories that we understand today, which are social and not genetic, will be replaced by well other forms of bigotry <laughs> and then i can rest and do something yeah, more, more interesting something else. <laughs> yeah. a cricket and and genealogy um i i, I wonder though because you, you see across the world in ways that you wouldn't believe are in any way connected that in india for instance you know fair and lovely is a product where you're supposed to try to lighten your skin or you know in 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 places all over the world that aren't just Europe or the US, there is subjugation and control and power based on color. Um, why do you think that is a thing? Is it just because it is an easily visible separating tactic that doesn't allow you to ever have to engage beyond the skin deep in whether someone is is caring or qualified or smart or worth uh, treating as a human? Yes, I do. I think I think that is the answer. I think that we are a, a very visual species. The first thing that we do when we identify someone is, uh, you know, well, man or woman. See if they're hot. Yeah, uh, skin color. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't. <laughs> this is a video call for, for the listeners. Um, the, the but yeah, we 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 see it. It's a it's a categorizing 
characteristic phenotype which is easy to 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 recognize and you know you said it a minute ago i i don't think it's when when people talk about them being colorblind or i don't see i don't see race well that's not useful either Mm -hmm. one of the things i say in the book is that you know for a long time well-meaning people say things like race doesn't exist and i know what they mean and i've done it in the past um what, what we mean is the genetics that underlies human variation doesn't tally with the social categorizations of race. Therefore, race is a social construct. But that's a lot less pithy than saying race <laughs> right, doesn't right. exist. Race does exist because it's a social category. And, you know, sometimes you hear people saying it's just a social construct, right? As if social constructs are somehow Aren't less- Enormously powerful. powerful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, they're less valuable than biological constructs. Well, you know, that's nonsense too, because time is a social construct and money is a social construct and you don't get people saying, I'm not going to pay you right? because m- money isn't <laughs> a real thing or that I'm going to- One of my t- aunts did that once. She was <laughs> like, I'm not the same as my corporeal body, so I don't owe you the cost that my corporeal body would for the crime I committed. That's a story for another time. Yeah, yeah. Or, or I'm not going to- co- I'm, I'm half an hour late for this meeting because- <laughs> But time well, is a flat circle, so- <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I'm just not on your time. Right. Um, right, right. And, you know, the other thing is we don't have biological relationships with very many people during the course of, of your- of one's life. And as a scientist, it's even less. But um, <laughs> we have social constructs, we have social interactions with everyone, with everyone that we meet. That's what we're doing right now. Right, right. So to say it's just a social construct is to fully under- fully misunderstand what humans are. Yeah. Uh, so I, you mentioned earlier, and, and this I think ties into the idea of I don't see race or I don't see color and how that can be actually ex- incredibly dangerous. It's specific to, and you have a foreword in your book that sort of updates it based on the fact that not only was the civil and social unrest relating to George Floyd going on in our country around race, but also COVID-19 and the disproportionate effects it had on people of, of different races. In the U.S., the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention actually withheld national level data about the disproportionate impacts on Black and Latinx and other people until a lawsuit threatened them to, to reveal it. In the United Kingdom, a government agency removed almost 70 pages of research from communities that pointed to structural causes of the unequal toll it was taking on Black, Asian, and minority groups. So if you ignore the races, then you don't look for yes. these clues that tell you why they're being let down by the system. Um, but it, that's to, to, to the earlier point about stuff like sickle cell and otherwise, what we've seen is that COVID-19 and other diseases will reveal to us the many things outside of race that are actually determining the impact something has on a race. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the we began to see the racialization of COVID from a medical point of view. It, it was already racialized as soon as the, it was identified as being a Chinese disease, but that's a separate issue. Um uh, we we saw that as early as March in the US and and in the UK because Black and Asian people here were more likely to get infected and die in Black Asian and Hispanic Latino people in 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 America. Immediately, people started clamoring to come up with a biomedical and therefore genetic basis for this incredible discrepancy. But the truth is, we didn't need to do that. There may be, there may be something at a molecular biological level that we haven't identified yet, which may contribute to the disparity that we see. But the reason we don't need to clamor for that is because medicine is racialized anyway, and COVID is not special in this regard. And all infectious diseases exp- uh, affect those communities more for socioeconomic reasons. That. Um, 
those groups of people tend to be lower socioeconomic status. They tend to be in urban concentrated living areas. They tend to be in multi-generational households and therefore old people who are more susceptible to the diseases are exposed to them. They tend to have not, not to have high status jobs. They tend, in, we call them key workers here in the UK. Um, so didn't have the option of locking down and distancing him. Yeah, because they were still taking out our trash and being nurses in hospitals and and doing the jobs that you know people like you and me could happily do from our our bedrooms podcasting and 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 writing right. um when they were out doing you know ma- maintaining the city so their their risk levels are always always going to be higher because of their socioeconomic status we didn't need to do the molecular biology of of the racialization of covid because it's not different from any other infectious diseases right. that are already heavily racialized and yet as soon as it started to as soon as those data started to to happen people were going well doesn't this show that race is a biologically meaning categorization because we're now seeing these these um these sorts of results so it's just like you know humans are so desperate to sort of uh, come up with a sciencey answer to things partly because i think you know what? We know the answers to these things already. Right. And it's... If it's science, then we can throw up our hands and say it's out of our control. Exactly. If it's well, everything it, else, it's our fault. It's, and it's, then we would have to actually acknowledge and change. Exactly. It's economics, it's social structures, it's prejudice, it's all of those things. And we're like, oh, but we know about these things and those things are really hard mm-hmm. to deal with. I might have to give up some of my power and control and wealth in order for those things to improve for others. And that seems difficult. So let's make it about science instead. Heaven forfend that we would yes. do something so foolish. Mm. Uh, we are running out of time, but very quickly, I wanted to ask you because uh, one of the things you talk about in the book is the areas that we most often slip up by believing stereotypes and assumptions, which are skin cust- color, ancestral purity, sports, and intelligence. When you're sending people out into the world, hopefully they will read the book to get all the nitty gritty or find other sort of information. Uh, how do you recommend that they approach or begin their journey into understanding how they have been misled or they believed in, in the wrong things? Well, read is is the answer. Okay, well, that's too much to ask of most people. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the other thing is that there's a line in the book which I wrote, and I knew that I hadn't come up with it. But then when I asked the person who had cut, uh, who I had thought had written it, she said she didn't come up with it either. And I did some <laughs> sort of tracking of it, and it's one of those ideas which is so pure and perfect that I just transcribed it. And it's this: it's if all you've ever known is privilege then equality feels like oppression. Mm -hmm. And it's the hardest thing to do is to recognize one's own privilege and and recognize that we all have advantages in in different ways. And if you are powerful, it is our responsibility to share that or use it to, to make a difference. Part of that journey, I think, is listening. So listening to the stories of black people and other minority groups and not ignoring them and not assuming that you're right and that your experience trumps them. That one of the things, I suppose one of the few positive things that has emerged in this hellish year so far <laughs> is that chart, is the fact that in the New York Times people, there is now a hunger for this type of content. Right, all the books and the educating being done by people who have otherwise sort of thought ignoring it was enough. Well, yeah, or, or or not even knowing that they were ignoring it, or, or mm-hmm. thinking, "Well, I'm not a racist." That the I mean, it's it's summed up in 
the one of the final lines in the book, which is a quote from Angela Davis, which is, um, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. You have to be anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And I do fundamentally believe that is true. It's a sort of much more eloquent expression of the, the, the old cliche, I guess, which is if you're not part of the part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. Right. And, you know, it, things of value take effort. They, they take work. And if we, if you're powerful and if you're interested, which we all should be, then, you know, we've got our work cut out for us. Start with education. Well, and I love the idea of the book intentionally being you, you're not allowed to use my science for your terrible opinions and beliefs. So you cannot try to support your shittiness with my very real science because you either don't understand it or you're turning it into something it's not. But that leads me to another quote of yours, which I think is an unfortunate way to end because it's a little bit uh, negative, but arguing with racists with conspiracy mindsets about science is a fairly fruitless endeavor and exhausting, which is very similar to the Jonathan Swift quote from earlier, right? If someone is not going to incorporate reason into the opinion they've created, then you're not likely to be able to use reason to move them off of it. Uh, but it's an, it's a nice thing to try, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> is where well, we land. Well, I'm a big comic book reader. Um, and always have been, and we're in the current era of the dominance of Marvel superheroes on the on the big screen, which I love unequivocally and unashamedly and unapologetically. And my favorite of all of them is Captain America. Mm. And what does he say? Well, I can do this all day. <laughs> That's a good approach. Or one of my favorite superheroes, Glennon Doyle, who says we can do hard things. Uh, they both work. even better. They even both work. Uh, well, I mean, I could talk to you forever. This stuff's fascinating. Um, and I'm not quite done with the book, so I'm sure I'm going to have more questions when I finish, but thank you so much for coming on. And I just love the idea of fighting stupidity with facts, even though only sometimes half of the people engaged care about the facts. Part. Yeah. Well, there's another, there's another, uh, there's a put, thing I put in a draft of the book and it got cut out because I couldn't, um, I couldn't persuade my editor that it fitted mm-hmm. and it's from the wire which I consider the wire to be the high point of human evolution. Okay. Yes. Many do. And it's when Carver stands on top of the car and he, well, I won't swear, but he says, you don't get to win. (laughs) We get to win. Yeah. That's, that's the trajectory of history. We get to win. I hope so. Um, I hope, I, I, yeah, I hope that that's the case. I also like, uh, my version, which is, uh, if you come at the queen, you best not miss. You best not miss. This is, uh, <laughs> another way to approach all of these. Um, we could go quote for quote for quite a while. It I love seem, it. But, uh, I love it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and good luck with the book. Uh, it's a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> that's what she said. This week marks the sixth annual KPMG Women's PGA Championship at Aronimink Golf Club in Newton Square, Pennsylvania. As the first ever partnership between the LPGA Tour, the PGA of America, and KPMG, the KPMG Women's PGA Championship brings together the best LPGA players from around the world to compete for one of the most coveted major championships in golf. Competing on championship-caliber courses, the KPMG Women's PGA Championship has elevated the women's game to new heights and puts the LPGA players in the national spotlight. And the KPMG Women's Leadership Summit, held the week of the championship, invests in rising women's leaders, aspiring to reach the C-suite by providing thoughtful content, tools, and networking opportunities. Together, they serve as catalysts to empower women both on and off the golf course. KPMG, continuing its commitment to the next generation of women leaders and proud sponsor of the KPMG Women's PGA Championship. To learn more, visit kpmg.com slash women's leadership, kpmg.com slash women's leadership. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me 
and I fix it. This week, it's NFL Sunday Twitter. And I know, I really hate devoting any time in this space to morons on the internet. I do it way too often. But damn it, I spend a lot of my time on the internet wading through the shit of the morons. And so this is a particular kind of cretinous jackhole that I totally forgot about until the NFL returned this past weekend. It's the guy, and it is always a guy, who responds to an eight-hour-old tweet, either unaware of its age and lacking uh, any relevance to the current moment, or knowing full well that he's responding to a tweet of a different time and just not caring. Both, I believe, are unforgivable. When I tweet at 12.32 p.m. that Mitch Trubisky is responsible for a 27-yard loss, his later heroics do not erase the terribleness of that 27-yard loss play, so don't tweet at me six hours later telling me to appreciate my quarterback. And when I, at 1.47 p.m., gaze at the stats of a Russell Wilson wondering aloud what it is to have a real quarterback, don't at me seven and a half hours later telling me the most oft-missed of all internet tropes, this didn't age well. Almost no one ever uses that correctly. One quarter of winning football for Mitch Trubisky and the Bears against a team that leads the league in fourth quarter collapses does not erase an entire franchise history of futility at the quarter pack position, you moronic halfwit. So telling me that Mitch having a couple good plays at the end of the fourth quarter erases my ability to gaze longingly at a Russell Wilson and say that the Bears have never had that since Sid Luckman is stupid and annoying. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because days, days later, I will receive a tweet, some confused, some angry, some mansplaining about some comment that was meant to live in the moment. Look at the timestamp, people. Also, the fun of Sunday NFL Twitter is overreacting in the moment about things. Now, I don't go so far ever as to say this is why they're going to lose or now they've won. I never do that. I know better because this didn't age well works really well when you definitively state a W or an L. I don't do that. But you're allowed to make comments throughout a game and not have someone unearth them hours later, not understanding the context at all. For instance, if Goskowski has to kick a game-winning field goal after he already missed every other goal, and I say, y'all, I'm so scared right now in all caps, that's not a relevant thing to bring up the next day and ask what I need prayers or hugs for. Context matters, people. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Sunday NFL Twitter is super fun, except for the morons who write responses eight hours later to tweets that were supposed to only live in that moment. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Find that's what she said with Sarah Spain. Give it five stars, review it with the kindest and nicest words you can imagine, and then leave your dilemma in the review and maybe I'll solve it on a future show. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs>